We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. I have a question for you, probably the weirdest you will be asked today. How would your life be different if you thought in poems? I know, weird, but hear me out. I have this theory that our lives would be richer, more alive, and more meaningful if we could all look through the eyes of a poet. I got this idea from the American poet Naomi Shahib Nye and took it as an invitation to be curious and live like a poet for a day. When I wrote up the results in my journal, the words wanted to take the shape of a poem. I've taken to contemplating lines from poems and letting them breathe for a few days. Now, one of these poems is by my witness today, John McCulloch, from his collection Reckless Paper Birds, which won the 2020 Hawthornden Prize and was shortlisted for the 2019 Costa Poetry Award. He teaches creative writing at the Open University and the University of Brighton. Welcome, John. So do you think life could be different if we think in poems? I think it would be, yes. I wish I could always think in poems. I think for me, poetry is a place where things really come together when language is quite elevated and when, yeah, things come together, I suppose. It's quite a transcendent thing. So I wouldn't say that I always think in poems, but yeah, that's the ideal. (laughs) I mean, you'd never get on the bus, really, if you were always thinking in poems. but. (laughs) But there has to be some times when we can have that elevated words and an elevated life. So a lot of people are a little sort of frightened of poems because they had sort of Walter de la Mer beaten into them when they were a small child. What was your experience with poetry as a child? Yeah, I think most people start out (laughs) hating it. Partly just because of school, I think that the way that it's taught at school is often through analysing poems, dissecting them, which I don't think is the best way to get to love poetry. Certainly, I didn't start writing and reading it until a little bit later in my late teens. And what really, I think just like a lot of teenagers, I was quite angsty and I found it very therapeutic both to read and to write it. The first poets I got into were writers like Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes, and I found their violent imagery very appealing at that time. That certainly sounds very teenage, Sylvia Plath. I mean, she knows how to do angst, doesn't she? She does, yeah. But she's got some great black humour as well. I think that there are certain writers that just appeal to people at different stages in their lives. And in particular, yeah, I think teenagers are often drawn to that kind of writing. So I often, when I teach young people, I will often draw on writers like that to try to (laughs) usher them into the dark side. (laughs) So I've got seven ideas, so please be patient with me. I've got seven ways that actually poetry, or thinking like a poet, or seeing the world like a poet, could actually enrich your life. So the most important one, I think, is the first one, which is actually being in the moment. 
And I think probably the best way to illustrate this and to let you know more about John is to get him to read out one of his poems. So I rather enjoyed The Orange Trees of Now. Would you be kind enough to read this poem for us? I would love to read this poem. I don't read this one out very often, actually. It's set where I live is Brighton and Hove. And there's a region called the North Lane, which is quite bohemian and full of lots of small independent shops and lots of subcultures. And one of the reasons I moved to Brighton was to be around people like this. I just fell in love with it. And I've been here for a couple of decades now. And yeah, that's where this poem's set. The Orange Trees of Now. I am lounging outside the honey locust in my black shirt, as if dressed for the funeral of winter. Though actually, I'm glad it's dead. Really, I'm stuffing my face with quiche at its wake and hoping for money to forget it existed. Spring is falling from the sky and even an empty monster munch packet trills the news. By the curb, there are scattered aquarium stones, green and orange, like someone from My Little Pony took a dump. I am sitting here beside my Earl Grey and thinking how orange has its roots in Naranja, a citrus tree that sprang from an elephant's corpse. I too would like to be useful after death, to hand on kidneys and vim, but that's for another hour. I am 38. My newborn grey hairs have prospects. Come in and talk to Vicky about your barnet, says the advert next door. Maybe I will. Maybe I will ask her about arched fringes and Brexit and other concepts I would not kiss. About the man asleep a few tables away who may not be breathing, though he doesn't smell yet. In the generous society I'm part of, dead people are welcome too. It's so much kinder than it ought to be, this icy pastel of sun and the teenager with blue pigtails who dips a coat hanger into a bucket of marbled water and spawns a lengthy bubble. It drifts along the street like it's just swum down from the clouds, gathering acolytes as it quivers, then twists stubbornly into the future, heading north. Wow. So we're sitting in a cafe in a busy street, but somehow we're in India. We're, <laughs> we're where My Little Pony takes a dump. We're thinking about death and Brexit, and then there's a beautiful bubble that's being blown and you're watching it disappear. I mean, you've been almost all around the world, haven't you? Welcome to my head. <laughs> But you were most truly there at that moment. Yes, absolutely. And I agree what you say about the present moment and poetry's capacity to hold us there. I think one of the things I like about poetry is the way that it unfolds and you can follow someone's mind across the course of quite a short space of time. When I'm writing, I will often jot down my thoughts as they arrive in a notebook. So I've got notebooks I carry with me everywhere. And I will often sit down at a cafe and just, you know, observe and be in the moment. And I just love being surprised and reacting and following the movements of my mind and the various strange entities that arrive there. So 
The first advantage of this is actually being in the moment. The next thing that I think actually really helps us lead a richer life from poetry is something that um, I'm going to call being curious. Mm. And I'm going to actually read a couple of lines from Stones, which is another one of your poems that I really liked. And then possibly you can tell me about the poem and then read it. So this is Stones. Rain makes me travel into myself. I lie in bed and notice things. How each fingernail is a screensaver of somewhere I've never been. So tell me a bit about that. That particular poem was inspired by an operation I had a few years ago for gallstones. I'd had them picked up on a scan like a long, long time before that. And Reckless Pepper Birds is about the vulnerability of the body. And so stones as a concept, it fitted into that. And the idea of the poem opening on, I think, just observing the body itself very closely and finding something surprising when you look at your body from a particular angle that you haven't before, I found quite interesting the idea that you can live with something every day, your body, not going to live somewhere else. And you can find things in it, on it, that you've not noticed before. And so, yeah, that idea of observing the body and finding that a fingernail might, you know, looked at from a different angle, be like a little screen for a device and that it could be a a screensaver, a little white hill in a pink sky above it. It was just something that, yeah, came to me one day, jotted it down in the notebook and often things sit in my notebook for a while until the right poem arrives. And then, yeah, I got to use that image eventually. I mean, when you have something, and I think we've got a bit of a medical emergency coming up here, do you actually think, oh, this will make a good poem, or are you just in the medical emergency? Sadly, I probably do think this will make a good poem like at all kinds of inappropriate moments. So when you are on the edge, I almost think that any experience is nearly worth it if I can get a poem out of it. And I get quite resentful of the difficult experiences in my life that don't yield poems. It's like, you know, oh, not only was it a terrible experience, I didn't even get a poem out of it. (laughs) So let's hear all about stones. Stones. Rain makes me travel into myself. I lie in bed and notice things. How each fingernail is a screensaver of somewhere I've never been. A white hill beneath a giant sky of pink ghosted with cloud. A country my hands have dreamed. I've fixed many names to this body across the years. Prophet, demon, twit. Once, palace of failures. The mice behind the skirting sing like birds, I thought, but I can't hear them. The sycamores too, for all I knew. My body, what a vessel to be stuck in. What a gruesome vase that kept on dribbling through all its holes, so I had to rinse it every day until I died. Later, I found it harboured other cargo. Stealthy freight concealed beneath my liver's right lobe. A crystalline accumulation. Doubts that had condensed into certainties. I woke at 3am with an angular pain below my sternum, 
radiating to my back. I phoned a taxi with one hand clutched to my useless breaking torso. I thought of Carnia, Roman goddess of organs and door handles, how I'd grown one inside me and it was forcing me open. Surgeons expanded me with gas, used forceps to coax out my secrets. I came to as someone rattled peppercorns inside a jar. Enough there to build a house. Wounds made my body tight. My walking speed, roughly zero miles per hour. This, however, is the stone of it. There was a door in the middle of the desert. I noticed things. Snails sliding up walls, the shape of bricks. How a roof can talk with sky. How every stem and slab and footsteps assign you thought of a world that keeps imagining. I do not need another vessel to better comprehend the dark. I am already part of it, already sending out white hills to join leaves falling, to bump along with tuneful mice singing through the night, with every pebble that begins among a family deep inside this public earth. Wow, that is quite a journey, isn't it? I love that um, when you've got all this pain, you're thinking of Carnia, the Roman goddess of organs. It sort of makes your life a bit bigger, really, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. And I should say that in the reality of the moment, I was just thinking, ow, ow, ow. <laughs> but in the world of poems, everything is elevated and you can piece things together to uh, make it into something greater that might, you know, I hope move someone else. And the idea that the goddess is also the goddess of door handles, that's a in really interesting idea that somehow the pain actually opens doors. So I hope you're beginning to get a sense of how actually contemplating some of these poems or a poem can actually take you places that the poet went and also start taking you other places yourself. So, for example, that idea that pain is a door handle, and you can sort of think a little bit about some of the doors that pain has brought you from. I mean, do you, re I mean, I, I was going to say, do you read other poets? I'm sure you do. Do you read them in this sort of kind of way that of sort of contemplating the poems rather than trying to necessarily understand every word of it? Absolutely. Yeah, I read a lot of poems. I've started reading poetry before I started writing it. And I think that I would dry up if I stopped engaging with other people's writing, which is a wonderful way of inhabiting a different perspective on the world and really energises me, I think. Because I think that might be one of the barriers to poetry for a lot of people. I know I much prefer poets like yourself that are sort of in the concrete world and then fly off to Roman goddesses rather than spend all their time with Roman goddesses. I need one foot on the ground for me. But I think one of my problems is I'm sort of trying too much to understand everything rather mm. than just sort of bathe in the water. Yes. And that comes from the school mentality of analysing poems, I think, and being like a vivisectionist <laughs> rather than just, yeah, it's a bit like music. I always think that poetry is closer to song than to prose. And the reason it's written in rhythm and uses 
images and plays on sound is that it appeals to something which is non-logical. It appeals to the unconscious part of the brain rather than the rational side that wants everything to be explained in logic and in you know very clear chunks. I think poetry is a way of inhabiting the world in terms of feeling and feeling isn't logical. Often it can be two contradictory things present together and you can feel both happy and sad at the at the same time and it's just about the reality of emotional truths about the way that we move through the world the way that we really experience things in terms of feeling which is a very illogical thing and music and poetry I think are able to capture that in a unique fashion. So the third thing I think that looking through the eyes of a poet might help is to make sense of things because we tend to be sort of almost, even if you're not a scientist, to be a scientific type of person that would see, for example, the gallstones as a physical thing. And yet, actually, to make sense of it, you've sort of got to look at it as more than just stones in your liver to make sense of the whole experience. Do you think poetry can help us make sense of things? There's bits of your life that actually you've sort of made sense of through poetry. Yeah, I I think different poems do different things, but certainly often a poem will arrive from a place of perception through pain or trauma. Often my writing is, I say generally, I'm more likely to write a poem if I've been quite uh, down or I think that happiness can be a great enemy to poetry and um, being, you know, fully fulfilled, you know, just don't have anything really to say other than I'm I'm happy. But yeah, I think that I often do process and think about things during the course of writing a poem and that the poem often captures a few leaps and swerves of the mind, of my mind, as I turn something over. Okay, so I think I'm going to use that sort of idea to segue on to the next thing that writing poetry or thinking in poets is important is I think it underlines the importance of writing things down because we have something that is sort of true to us or is a sort of an insight and it flashes past our brain in a millisecond and is actually, it might be remembered for the day, but is sort of lost otherwise. The poem that I read of yours that sort of blew my mind and is sort of one of the reasons why we're talking today is one called Soulcraft. You wrote the first line 15 years ago, or 15 years before you actually wrote the poem, and it was just a line. Would you like to tell us what this line was? It was the opening line of the poem, which came to me again when I was very ill. I'd had a bit of a breakdown in about 2003, and I was with my, I stayed with my parents who looked after me for a while. And just the, the phrase kind of floated through my head at the time, and I wrote it down. And as you say, yeah, so often thoughts arrive and leave us and we can't even remember what they are the next day. So I do tend to jot things down. I've usually got a notebook handy and often I don't know whether I'm going to use a phrase or image ever, but often equally I will end up using something a few years later. And one of the great things about keeping lots of notebooks and not throwing them away is that I can draw on past Johns and their realisations and their perceptions and their thoughts and the movements of their thoughts too when I'm writing something. So I'm not just writing from the empty page, I'm drawing on previous experiences of mine that I've recorded. 
So tell me more about this breakdown. Oh, this was, I was doing a PhD at the time, uh, which is often quite a lonely experience. I was quite a square child. I did my uh, BA and MA and PhD back to back. And I'd got to the PhD and it was on Renaissance friendship, which I was, I'd been researching for a couple of years, but halfway through, I realized that I didn't want to pursue that path any further, even though I put all my eggs in that basket and I'd been very tightly focused on academia. I was a very academic child. I just realized halfway through that I didn't want to go into writing about literature in an analytical way. I didn't know that I was going to focus so much on my creative work, but I definitely knew that I wanted to inhabit the world in a non-analytical fashion. And I was much more interested in the emotional power of language and not analysing the ideological fabric of everything. (laughs) So how did this crisis manifest itself? Well, about two years into my PhD, I had just really strong headaches and stomach aches and a feeling of dread. So I've often had problems with anxiety, but this was particularly pronounced. And it just reached eventually a crisis point. And fortunately, yeah, my parents looked after me for a little bit and I saw a a therapist who I found very helpful and he got me to, you know, relax muscles and things like that and just try to live more in the moment. And yeah, fortunately, during my PhD, I'd already started like sending out like individual poems and that became my alternative path. So it was only, you know, the, the end of one path was the start of a different one. And I knew that I wanted to be, I'd always wanted to be a writer, but I'd never really focused on it properly. I was always thinking, oh, I'm, you know, my main thing is going to be academia, but I'm really glad that I followed my heart. It was really a, a tussle between heart and head. My head was like, you know, it's going to be a more reliable income if you're in, you know, teaching on 16th century literature, going to all these conferences about, they're always about obscure things like incest and Morris dancing. And I didn't want to do that. I'd say no to those things. And I wanted to put my eggs in the creative basket, so to speak. And I did. And it took a long time. It's worth saying that like any craft writing, you know, you have to hone your skills over a long period of time and, you know, incrementally get better through reflection and through feedback and things. But I'm so glad that that process of great pain with the breakdown led to me finally focusing on what I really wanted to do, which was the writing of poetry. And it really shows how we have to listen to our unconscious because your head had one path for you, your unconscious, your soul, the bigger version of you rather than just the ego had other plans. And we sort of say, no, 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 I've got to finish my thesis. And yet the body starts sending headaches and they drive you into your parents' bedroom. I mean, I can't think of anything more horrifying than actually being back living with your parents. It sounds like (laughs) hell to me. And yet in this came a line of poetry that is incredibly powerful. It must have been, I'll read it out and then tell me what it was like to actually write this line down. It's true. There is a light at the center of my body. I'm going to repeat it because it's, I mean, so beautiful. It's true. There is a light at the center of my body. 
What was it like writing that poem in the sort of, I imagine, the darkness of, is it your childhood bedroom? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that was a very dark time when I wrote down the phrase. It was just something that floated through my brain and I was feeling very much kind of out of body. I was very, I had problems with speech, like I couldn't speak for about a month and all kind of, you know, psychosomatic and, you know, when you have like a breakdown, your brain can't do all the things that it normally can do. But yeah, this phrase floated in. And yeah, it wasn't for a long, long time that I wrote the poem. I didn't know that I was ever necessarily going to use the phrase, but because it had arrived to me at that moment, it was particularly resonant for me all those years later. And I knew that often just a phrase arrives and it just sounds right or it feels right. And I just feel it gives me momentum to construct something around it. And it was definitely the seed for the poem Soulcraft, that line. And it's almost like something in you has a greater wisdom than you actually have at that moment. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that the unconscious part of us is so creative and so full of ideas and wisdom that we don't think we know. And often when I sit down to write, what I end up writing, I could never have predicted beforehand. And it's because, you know, the unconscious has all these things. And you, once you start writing, all kinds of things kind of bubble up. This is the creative part of us that generates dreams, for instance. All of us are more creative than we know. And when I get my students to, I call it free writing, is when, uh, just that's a general name for it rather than my unique name for it. But when you write very fast, just trying to access the unconscious mind, not worrying about punctuation or grammar, just trying to follow your thoughts as quickly as you can, then so often my students access memories they haven't accessed for, you know, decades and they discover ideas and images and phrasing that they you know had no clue were buried there underneath and even if you're not a writer this idea which is sometimes called daily pages is a good way of actually getting to your feelings if you're feeling a bit blocked and if when you sit down you can't actually think of anything just write i am writing i am writing i am writing until something comes in and you know, this is all going to be thrown away, but there could be something that's going to come out of it that would remove your blockage. So this is something not just for writers that are looking for ideas, but it's just if you're feeling blocked, you're in a very difficult place at the moment. Sit down, do your daily pages for 20 minutes every day, and you'll be amazed at what will come out. Let's go back over some of the things that I'm thinking that poetry can help you enrich yourself with. We've got being in the moment, being curious, making sense of things, the importance of writing things down. The next one is a sort of revelation of truth. And I think the poem Soulcraft that begins with that beautiful line, it's true, there is a light at the center of my body, is a sort of revelation of truth. So would you be kind enough to read this wonderful poem to us? Soulcraft. It's true, there is a light at the centre of my body. If I could, I would lift aside a curtain of this flesh and demonstrate, but for now it is my private neon. It is closest to the air at certain moments, like when buttercups repair a morning's jagged edge. Other times, a flock of days descends, and my soul flickers, goes to ground. Without light, I'm all membrane. Each part becomes a gate. 
I pour across each margin and nothing has enough hands to catch me. My teeth knocking so fast, I daren't hold any piece of myself near in case I start a banquet. I'm only eased by accident. On the drenched path, I pick up snails and transport them to safer earth, then feel a stirring. I watch as rain streams from locked back elms, my face teeming with water and, hello stranger, my soul glides to my surface like it too belongs there, like a bright fish rising to feed. Wow. You can imagine what a wonderful day I had contemplating this particular poem. There's a couple of lines that particularly moved me. The idea that the light at the centre of the body, it is closest to the air at certain moments, like when buttercups repair a morning's jagged edge. That's beautiful. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Because in a sense, this is beauty is something that you see more through this poet eyes. And I mean, I've got another section of this one I'm just going to sort of point up because of the beauty of it. I watch as rain streams from lopped back elms, my face teeming with water, and hello, stranger, my soul glides to my surface like it too belongs there, like a bright fish rising to feed. I mean, that is just so beautiful. And our lives sort of need more beauty in them, don't they? I think they do. And that poem, I think it was a real turning point for me and I'd never really written directly about spiritual experience. And it is something that was, I think, lacking in my life by focusing so tightly on the logical and the analytical through academia. I think that I needed to, yeah, nourish that other side of me, really. And Brighton has lots of elm trees, unusually. And I was, I think it was in Pavilion Gardens in Brighton. Uh, Yeah, there were these elms that had been lopped back. And so there was a literal observation of these elms that kind of contributed to the poem too. The other day I had on the Jungian analyst Robert Hopke talking, and he was saying that the important thing for us as human beings today is we need to re-enchant our lives. That Mm. somehow, because we live very much in our heads, we live very much with a scientific view of the world. So, you know, we're thinking of photosynthesis rather than the butterflies repairing the jagged morning edges that we need to sort of re-enchant our lives and so that they sort of become bigger again. And it can't be done, I don't think, secondhand. You can't just take other people's ideas, you know, I don't know, superheroes sort of to re-enchant your life. You've sort of got to do it for yourself. Poetry can sort of help you see the buttercups in a different way and the elm trees, but allows you to sort of as I say, re-enchant your life. What do you think of this idea? Yeah, I think that poetry does offer a space in the modern world for mystery, uh, for wonder, for a sense of awe and transcendence. And that, yeah, the reading of poetry certainly got me to focus on the concrete particulars of my life much more closely. And you're right, I, I really do like to populate my poems with objects with people with flowers with animals and 
I think that when transcendence arrives, you know, the moment when it comes together arrives, it is in a concrete place. And when you take the reader to that concrete place, then I think it's easier for them to use their imagination and I hope to recreate themselves something of the feeling that I experienced before writing the poem. I think it's really good to try to make the reader active and to engage them and make them feel it on their own rather than me spelling it out and, you know, spoon feeding them everything. Because I'm sitting here sort of contemplating the similarities between your work and my work because actually in therapy, symbols are really useful. That if you can actually get people to find a metaphor for their life or where they are, even better if they come up with it themselves, it can really be a turning point. So I'm Mm -hmm. thinking at this moment of somebody who sort of felt that he was the cabin crew on the plane of life that somebody else, in this case very much his parents, were actually the pilot. And all he was doing in his life was, you know, going around serving tea and coffee and trying to keep things safe by doing safety drills and whatever. And this sort of image gave him a whole new way of looking at his life and thinking about what he wanted to do differently Mm. in a way that, you know, your parents are in charge sort of doesn't and he could return to it. And so the symbols of poetry are very much like depth psychology. There's sort of multiple interpretations, and you can go into that image of being the crew rather than the pilot and see it in multiple different ways. And there are no black and white answers. And I think you're interested in symbols, you're interested in multiple interpretations, and no one interpretation of anything. Am I seeing these links correctly? Yeah, I think so. And I think this is why analysing a poem to arrive at a correct meaning is quite unhelpful, I think. And not all teachers do that, obviously. I think teaching has probably changed since my day. But I think that when you open your mind to the idea that a piece of music or a poem can move people in different ways and that they can have different interpretations and there's not a correct answer that, you know, is the right thing that you should have got from the poem. I think that it just opens up a lot of space for enjoying art together. Yeah, I definitely believe that there isn't necessarily a correct meaning to any poem. So do you think you can teach someone to be a poet or maybe they just are? Oh, I certainly believe that it's a craft. So for me, I'm really against the idea of genius or whatever, that you're just born with a gift to do things. And, you know, you might have a certain level of natural ability, but it's that old cliche of, you know, 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. That was certainly the case for me as a student, as a creative writing student. Um, I did a couple of modules when I was an undergraduate and I wasn't particularly gifted. I wasn't the best poet in my class or even the second best. It's just that I really devoted myself to the craft and to reading, 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 writing, 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 editing, 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 getting feedback. As with any sort of craft, I think that, yeah, you get better over time incrementally and it's about how much you put into it. Certainly, yeah, I don't think that... It's something that should be thought of as a special gift that is inaccessible to others. And self-belief, it's something that a lot of my clients struggle with. And I'm wondering where the self-belief came to share your poetry, your voice, your outlook. Where did you find that self-belief? 
I think that it was a very gradual process. So I started writing in the mid 90s and my first poems weren't published until the early 2000s. My first book didn't appear till 2011. And then Rex Paper Birds is much more successful than anything I've done before. And that was 2019. So it was a slow process of confidence. And for instance, when I did my first poetry readings, they were dreadful because I used to read far too quickly and no one could understand a word I was saying because I was so nervous. I just wanted to get to the end of the performance and sit down again. And confidence comes through practice, through experience. And yeah, certainly I find it much easier now to perform my writing and to send things out to publishers, which requires a degree of, well, not necessarily confidence, a degree of hope. And yeah, it can be quite a full process. Well, I hope that I've convinced people to at least experiment and actually see what it would be like. If you're listening to this in the morning, what would it be like today just to sort of slow down, notice some things, and just allow yourself to breathe and actually be there with those random small little things and, you know, see where it takes you. It might take you to glorious places like My Little Pony Dumps, or it might just give you a moment of beauty. And, you know, if you have some thoughts, do write them down and give your thoughts the importance of recording them and allowing them to grow a little bit. It doesn't mean that you're going to become a poet or anything else like that, but I think it could give you a richer and deeper and more meaningful life. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. One of the advantages of becoming a supporter of the um, Meaningful Life is there are all sorts of extra benefits. So once again, go to www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts and find out more about joining our supporters circle. You get all sorts of added benefits like the extra bonus parts of the conversation I have with my guests. At higher levels, there's even more benefits. And you can also write to us. And this is what somebody has written. I was interested by your conversation about the boy crisis and what it means to be a man today. I'm in my 30s, but I still remember the messages to man up and grow some balls from my childhood. But the more I think about it, the more I realize I had no clue what I was doing that was beneath the standard of being a man or what to do to raise myself up to that standard. I wasn't even told why it was important to be one, other than that's what I was expected to be. At the time, the only things I could come up with were things that boys shouldn't do. Cry, get too upset, although angry seemed okay, like certain pop music which was gay. I wonder how much I still hold myself to these values today. Is it policed by other men and how much by women? I know my mother doesn't like me to be sad or down and I try not to worry her. My girlfriend often asks me to open up, but she seems to only want to hear nice things, not how I'm really feeling. What's the cost of this man stuff? Sorry, lots of questions and no answers. So what were your thoughts when you read the thoughts of this correspondent then, John? 
I felt very sad. I certainly can recognise a lot of that in myself. The writing of poetry is not a traditionally masculine occupation. Well, I think it used to be in the past, but certainly nowadays, writing poems was not something that I told people about for, you know, quite a while. I remember when my first book came out and very few of my friends in Brighton knew that I was writing poems. You found it difficult to come out as a poet, did you? Yeah, yeah, much tougher than coming out as queer, I think. But when you identify as a poet or as queer, you're in opposition to dominant ideas around correct male behaviour, I think, already. And so I think it probably is easier for me nowadays to be a man in a different way. But I hope that culture changes. And I think it is changing at the moment when, you know, the idea that gender might be more complex than you know a simple binary i was thinking of harry styles who wears dresses sometimes and the idea that you can have feelings as a man is really important and i think the younger generation people younger than me are driving this conversation forward and expanding the idea that there might be different ways of being a man it probably helps that i live in brighton and hove as well which is quite an alternative place as i say quite bohemian and all kinds of ideas float around here that yes i find helpful But I think it's really important to actually look at back and actually understand the programming that we got, you know, the idea that there is a standard of being a man. And even, you know, though I'm 62 and I live in Berlin, which probably makes Brighton seem like a very conservative kind of place, there are still things that you get concerned about and that you suddenly find here is a load of old, you know, what will people think sort of kind of material. And unless you're actually conscious of it, you can't actually challenge it. It's extremely powerful, isn't it? I think the imperative to obey those norms of gender definitely is something that I I could really identify with the correspondent. I think that, yeah, we're really conscious when we are departing from those wishes of the wider culture. And it's always been a part of culture. I mean, I was researching on Renaissance masculinities during my PhD, but they were slightly different. It slightly changes over time in terms of what's deemed masculine and feminine in different historical periods. So, so, in- so to tell us what was considered masculine in uh, these times. Well, it was more about control and self-control. So it wasn't necessarily that you'd be thought of as feminine if you were you know, attracted to a man. It was more that you'd be seen as feminine if you were sleeping with lots of women and you couldn't control your appetites. The regulation of desire and of appetite was really central from what I was reading anyway when I was researching it a while ago compared to nowadays when we have... I'd say sometimes almost the opposite is true, that you're seen as more masculine if you are perhaps sleeping with more people or being more socially uh, dominant. I think that they had the ideas of gentlemanliness and things in those days as well, which had various things attached to it around self-control too. It's fascinating, isn't it? We think of this as being a solid thing that goes on forever, but actually every era has a different idea. I mean, give me one from your childhood that now seems preposterous. Were you growing up in the 80s? Am I guessing right? That's right. Yeah, I was growing up in the 80s. And there were certainly very strong gender role models. So it was all Arnold Schwarzenegger films, like lots of, you know, big muscly guys. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly the idea that if you were a boy, that you shouldn't be crying, that it was particularly wrong 
for a boy to have, you know, strong feelings that weren't anger. That was definitely around when I was a child. So thank you very much for being my witness today on The Meaningful Life. I have to ask you, what makes your life meaningful? I suppose for me, I mean, I'm sure that this will echo answers of previous guests, but connections for me. So connections with people, with animals, with, I'm a bit of a hippie. So, you know, even connections with plants, I think everything is in everything else. I have a bit of a Zen perspective, but I think for me, though poetry is an important part of my life, it's really love that makes life meaningful in terms of my partner, my family, my cats, my friends, connecting to those around me. That would be my answer. Everything is in everything else. Tell me more about that. I suppose one of the things about metaphor is that it reveals the connections between two things that on the surface seem quite disparate. And certainly the writing of poetry is a bit like Zen in that it's often closely observing one random thing. I like the way that you use the word, the random objects around you, and that you can gain insight through just paying attention to whatever is in front of you, that there are, you know, it will have the same effect. You can have the same route to truth, to uh, revelation through close observation. So yeah, everything is interconnected. We're all part of this. (laughs) This is where I really sound like a hippie. We're all part of the same organism. We're all part of the same dream. We are different parts of the same overarching universe. And why do you have to apologise and say you're sounding hippie-ish? Can't you just say it? <laughs> yeah, I should. I should be. I think you're right. Yeah, I should be more proud of that side of me. I think that. I think culturally, when you're British, it's quite difficult to talk about spiritual questions compared to, say, Americans who feel much more comfortable discussing these things. Yeah, I agree. I should be more proud. <laughs> I don't know a poet that feels embarrassed about their feelings and their thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's amazing how strong the programming is, isn't it? You know, this is not so much men programming, but more sort of British culture programming. Yeah, and this is partly why I, there are so many of my favourite poets are Americans and certainly writing about emotion in a very direct, intense way. People often describe my writing as quite intense and quite wild. And definitely it really helped me to read a lot of American poetry because they culturally have such a different relationship to spirituality and to feelings and the expression of those and the, the foregrounding of the self. Americans are much less embarrassed about, you know, starting with I and with the the self, whereas, you know, British, oh, how arrogant, how terrible, how self-aggrandizing. How embarrassing. It's that's, that's the terrible thing about being English. You're sort of permanently embarrassed. Oh, yeah. You learn all the many different meanings of sorry fairly quickly. So thank you very much for being my witness on The Meaningful Life today. Now, this is where the conversation finishes for most people. But if you would like to join us in the bonus section, here's details about how to do that. And you'll find out what I've learned from this experience. And we can also find out the three things that John knows deep down to be true. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. 
Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Collick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.